0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about the character of Paul as found in the New Testament. We're going to be paying particular attention to Paul's role in the book of Acts and what the book of Acts is about. This podcast is going to be acting as an addendum to the Bible Brodown podcast. They got two episodes on the book of Acts, episode 77, mini cast 77, in which they go through the book of Acts and they talk about all the major events and they assign dating. And they give a lot of good information and they're very well spoken i know i'm a little rough to listen to at times but they got good voices they're easy to listen to they're not calvinists they're not open theists either but uh give them a listen look at download their podcast and listen to what what they have to say about these different topics so it's a good podcast to listen to but what i noticed about their podcast on the book of acts is they missed some critical details And they self-admitted that they were missing some details. They get to these trouble spots. I call them trouble spots. They're kind of my favorite spots in the book of Acts. These, These passages that people just don't know what to do with because they don't understand the dynamics of what's going on in the early church between Paul and the 12, Paul and James. They don't understand the relationship and the relationship dynamics and the inner church politics at that time. And so they're confused when they get to these tricky scenes that just don't quite fit with How they think the church operated so we're going to talk about who paul was in the new testament his character his ministry and all about him and these early dynamics to make sense of the book of acts these these trouble spots trouble spots acts 15 acts 21 and so on so let's talk about who paul was as an individual when i was a teenager there was a list that came out by some historian or historians and I listed the most influential people in all of history, and ranked number one above Jesus of Nazareth. They had Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus was more influential than Jesus. And a young me at the time, you know, when you're young and you you don't you can't critically evaluate things, as you, you're a little bit more emotional when people say things that you you feel is not right in your gut and uh, you're less objective when you're young, and so you're emotional. And young me was very offended at this, that that Paul of Tarsus was more influential than Jesus of Nazareth. A- after all, didn't Jesus influence Paul, and as such, didn't uh, anything Paul did uh, rely on Jesus? Well, yeah, ki- kind of in a sense, but looking at it objectively, looking at it objectively, modern Christianity mirrors Paul's Christianity, the Christianity that Paul was teaching, the theology that he wanted us to believe, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the atonement for sins, this grafting in of the Gentiles, this forsaking of the the symbolic uh, ritual laws of, of Israel. And none of that was part of Jesus's ministry. Jesus didn't teach any of that at all. Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher preaching the coming kingdom of God and a reformation of our lives. He wasn't teaching about personal death and sacrifice to salvation. He wasn't teaching about the atonement. That wasn't part of his ministry. So in that sense, yes, Paul's Christianity is the Christianity that we have today. He is more influential than Jesus in that respect. So who is this Paul of Tarsus? Let's talk about his character and what we can glean from his writings and his actions. Number one, this man is a zealot. And what's a zealot? Uh, there, there's different definitions for the word zealot. The, the, the word I'm using here is someone who is impassioned to the point of, of going out of his way to put himself in bodily harm in order to, for his views, his, his ideology. He's a zealot. He says this, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamal." taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous, zealous he was a zealot, towards God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to death, he brought people to be killed, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there, to Jerusalem to be punished. He went out of his way to get people and bring them in to be punished. This guy was a zealot. He was so enthralled with his ideology that he had put himself in danger and he would put other people in danger and bring them to be killed because of his ideology he cared so much about. It, it, it takes a lot in individuals to put their life on the line to go do something. It takes a lot in individuals to kill other people. It, it takes something that most people just naturally don't have this was in him he, this this person this individual paul of tarsus was a zealot he was a true believer in what he was doing and he brought this character with him in his conversion to christianity and he applied his zealotry from persecuting christians to ministering about Christianity. The next character trait I'd identify in Paul is he was fiercely intelligent. He understood what he was saying and what he was doing. He put together not, not systematic theology, but uh, a practical theology, enough to convince his listeners, people who are naturally hostile to his views. He, he tried to minister to uh, Jews, and that tended not to work out as we see throughout the book of Acts. But it was very receptive with the Gentiles and he built a very big cult following so much so that he had to be contended with in Jerusalem among the 12 and James. But he is very intelligent. He understood what he was doing. He understood this theology he was laying down and he defended it with practical examples. He understood the Bible and he used the Bible very effectively in, in setting, laying down his theology. The next characteristic we need to add to Paul is that he was very rash. He would do stuff that put himself in danger. For example, going to Jerusalem, he's warned multiple times by multiple people. He's warned by the Spirit. He's warned by prophets not to go to Jerusalem, yet he does anyways. Looking at this, Acts 21.4, he says, And finding the disciples, we stared there seven days, and they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So do you always have to obey the Spirit? No, you don't have to. And then there's a demonstration uh, with a belt, and then a prophet says to him, And when he had come back to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. That's, That's not quite what happens in Jerusalem, but the idea is there. The idea is that he's going to be imprisoned if he goes to Jerusalem, and he decides to go anyways. Very rash, and once he's in Jerusalem, and once he's captured, he appeals to Caesar. These are these are the actions of someone who, who just kind of leaps into danger. It's it's not a risk adverse person at all. He's a rash man. With that characteristic comes boldness. He's very bold. He stands out in the streets. He preaches. He risks being stoned to death uh, multiple times. Yeah, people tried to kill him, stone him to death. They imprison him all the time, but he keeps on speaking, anyways. And Paul's like that, he is zealous, and it emboldens him to go out and do actions that uh, normal sane people probably would shy away from because they understand inherent risks. They're not as outspoken as Paul. God likes to pick very bold people uh, throughout the Bible in order to accomplish His will. Like King David, even though King David has his faults, he's one of the heroes of the Bible, and partly that's to due to his character, his, his boldness, his, his passion, his vigor. And Paul has a lot of that, although I think Paul, um, we'll get to these other characteristics that kind of set him apart from these different individuals. Confidence, he shows a lot of confidence anywhere he goes. He says, God is going to be with me and protect me and guide me. And it worked for him until the end of his life, right? God was with him and protected him until he died. What this also tells us, he's a true believer. He's not a charlatan just trying to fleece people of money. And he was accused of that. We flip over to 1 Corinthians 9 and he's answering critiques of him. And uh, we, we learn a lot of interesting things from these defenses. He says this, my defense to those who examine me is this. These are actual criticisms of him. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it the ox God is concerned about? Or does he say it for our sakes? And so what he's saying is that uh, he's going around the entire ancient world, gemming up money, taking collections for those who are starving a famine in Jerusalem. He's collecting money for the saints to feed them. And what he's doing is he's also living off of these expenses. And he's saying, do I not have the right to, to get some sort of benefit off of this? Or do I have to go around working and collecting money? Or, or can I be that ox who's allowed to tread out the grain and eat the grain as they work? And another interesting thing about this is uh, he's supporting a woman along with him. He says this, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? There is a woman that's walking around and going and ministering with him. And in 1 Corinthians, he, he talks about being celibate and not being married. And so uh, there's he's saying there's no sexual relationship going along with this woman, but she was traveling along with them. And he was being critiqued for it. And she was eating from their proceeds from their collections. And so he was accused of being a charlatan or just someone who's who's uh, just stealing money and going around and just living off of other people and. Maybe like one of those prosperity preachers who, who get everyone to send them $50, and they say, oh, blessings to you, and then they live their lavish lifestyle. Paul's saying he's not doing that. He's he's using minimal uh, subsistence, and uh, he's, he's doing things within integrity, within standards of morality. That's his counterclaim. All right, so Paul is a true believer. This next one I might get in trouble with, but it's true. It's true if you understand and read Paul. Uh, the next characteristic I would give him is that Paul is neurotic. He's neurotic, and he worries often about being abandoned. When people abandon him, he lashes out at them. The entire book of Galatians, if you read it, it's it's very strong, harsh language. A lot of hyperbolic uh, terms are used. He says his enemies should be castrated. His enemies are are the from the pits of hell. And even if he says, even if I preached you a different gospel, don't believe me. He's, he's, he's very angry and impassioned about this, that people are turning away from the gospel that he taught. And you, you see this bitterness in various other letters, which he talked about the people who turned away. And then he talked about how happy he was about the people who stayed. He's very neurotic. We, we look at the, his defense of these allegations that we just already went over about bringing, bringing around a wife with him, and uh, eating out of the proceeds of what the money he's raised. Look at this. Uh, Look at this. Peter's in Antioch. There's men from James that comes, and James is the leader of the church at the time. And so Peter falls in line with what the men from James expects, and he starts uh, carrying on with the traditional Jewish uh, separation laws. And uh, Paul, he withstands him, and he confronts him to his face. He calls him a hypocrite, and he says that he's not living the truth of the gospel. Paul is not only showing his boldness, his confidence, but also a little neuroticism, where if something doesn't go the way he wants it to, he has these these outbursts, these very public outbursts, and then he writes about it later. And what he's doing with this is he's telling these Galatians that later turned away from him, he's reinforcing his authority. He's saying, I stood up against James, I stood up against Peter, And guess what? I'm the winner when it comes to these confrontations. So it's surprising me, you Galatians, that you're turning away from me when I got the better of both James and Peter. And you'll see that throughout Paul's writings where he appeals to his own authority. He kind of does this thing where he humble brags all the time, where he says, oh, I'm the least of all the apostles. But then he talks about all his uh, special... His special endowment, his, his his special dispensation that he's been given personally, and he didn't get it from any of the other apostles. And he still says, "Oh, I'm the least of all the apostles." It's kind of like this humble bragging thing where he's trying to say, "I'm humble," but he's trying to appeal to his strong authority in order to make his case to get people to believe him at the same time. So neuroticism—he's a little bit emotionally unstable. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but. Uh, He's, he's not calm and collected. The last thing I'm going to throw out there about the character of Paul is that he's very politically orientated. He understands what kind of cards he has, when to play them, and when to fold his cards. He uses his Romans card, his uh, card that I'm a Roman citizen, to get out of various uh, bad situations. He also understands his position in the hierarchy in the Christian church, and he uses it to his advantage when he can. In Acts 15, there's a dispute, and he brings this dispute to James and Peter and the 12 in Jerusalem, and then uses his uh, ability to convince and manipulate to get them to give him a special dispensation. And then he draws on that and he expands on that in the meantime, and he violates the terms that were laid down in Acts 15 until he's brought to account in Acts 21, at which time he has to fold his hands because he's called to account for what he's been teaching, and he has to go through this purification ritual in order to prove to people that he was not teaching what he actually was preaching. He was preaching that the Jews no longer circumcise, And this got him in a lot of hot water with James and other apostles. So Paul is walking this very thin line. A thin line be- between being an accepted part of the ministry of Christ after Christ's death and resurrection and being expelled, cast aside as a heretic. And a lot of people in the early church did consider him a heretic. In the pseudo-Clementine literature, uh, Paul is basically equated with Simon Magnus and cast aside as a heretic. And we see some possible reaction in James, even in the book of James, to Paul's ministry, using the same examples as Paul, but in opposite effects and counteracting exact things that Paul was teaching. In the book of 2 Peter, I'm just going to kind of read it, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which there are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. So Peter is the peacemaker. He's the one in Acts fifteen who who unites the two camps and stands up for Paul. And brings Paul into the fold and vouches for him. In Second Peter, he's doing the same thing. He's vouching for Paul again, although he, he's putting a little bit of distance between them because Paul's teaching has led people, untaught and unstable people, to twist Paul's teaching to their own destruction. You see veiled references to Paul's teaching also in Revelation. where well, who are the bad guys? The bad guys are the ones forsaking the law, which is Paul's ministry, Right? There's these tensions going on. There, there's this this hierarchy struggle. There's a conflict of vision going on here. And who was James? Peter was supposed to be the leader of the church, but Peter was not as strong as James. So James appears on the scene, and although Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the, the keys to Hades, uh, he actually loses control to James. And James becomes such a figure that he's referenced by... None other than Josephus. He's mentioned by Josephus. That's to what extent James became popular and well-respected, that James even overshadowed the life and ministry of Jesus in pop- popular literature, in popular culture. One thing I like to do is I collect these scholarly quotes that uh, basically says the same thing that I'm saying here. It's, it, it's not like I'm making up anything new that people don't know about, just that Christians come to the Bible with a certain mindset. And so they automatically disallow certain readings of the Bible that uh, normal scholarship picks up and they talk about. And uh, then Christians are all confused when you bring these things up to them. They've never heard of it before. Their their mindset, their worldview, their outlook on the Bible just doesn't work at such that it allows these things to be options. Here's Elaine Pagel's and she's writing in Revelation, Visions, Prophecy, and Politics. She writes this, Paul's impassioned preaching soon attracted a considerable following of Gentiles in the Syrian city of Antioch, but it also embroiled him in bitter disputes with the other followers of Jesus. People who belonged to De- the Jerusalem group led by Jesus' brother James, apparently charged that Paul's gospel was so radical that it contradicted what they had heard from the most respected leaders, including James himself and the disciples Peter and John. Although what Luke later wrote in the book of Acts glossed over these disputes, Paul's own words suggest that initially he was concerned that Peter and James, or at any rate their followers, might oppose him for preaching to the Gentiles a gospel that had dropped all Torah requirements, although he says that finally they agreed to let him teach it. So when other leaders in the movement accused Paul of having no credentials to speak for Jesus, whom he had never met, Paul burst out in anger. He sarcastically called his accusers super apostles, who were forcing him to talk about matters that made him feel foolish and uncomfortable. Since what he had to say would sound like boasting, Paul insisted that he taught only what came to him directly through revelation, not from Peter, James, or anyone else on earth. Paul insisted that his authority came straight from God, from visions and revelations of the Lord. This is Ellen Pagels writing this, of Paul's disputes with other believers and uh, the struggles, and even a little bit of his humble bragging that we talked about a little bit, where he, he says, oh, I don't want to talk about it because it'll sound like I'm bragging. Yeah, that's kind kind of what I'm saying here. So then we turn to Acts. The entire book of Acts is laying down, yes, a history of Christianity. But what the book of Acts is acting as is actually it's acting as propaganda. The point of the book of Acts, the purpose of the book of Acts is to legitimatize Paul's ministry. You start out in the book of Acts talking about the 12 disciples and James, and gradually the narrative of Acts shifts until it's completely and utterly focused on only Paul. Basically, it's associating him with the 12. It's associating him with the direct lineage of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' earthly ministry. It's incorporating him into the tradition of the church, and it's uh, laying out a case of why he should be considered as part of this Jesus movement. The purpose of Acts is to make Paul legitimate, and uh, there, there's no shame in that. Uh, it, so we come across these weird passages such as Acts 15, and in Acts 15, there's uh, d- men from Judea, says men from Judea, they come and they come from Paul, and they said, Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so when you talk to people, they don't understand who these guys are. they said, saying, oh, these are just false apostles who, who reject Jesus, and they reject James, and they reject Peter. No, these, these are James's people. These are James' people. This is evidenced by the fact that in order to solve this dispute, who do they go to? They go to Peter and James to solve this dispute. So the people who come down teaching, these, this is years and years after Jesus' death, what at least 10 years right at least 10 years after Jesus's death the people in Jerusalem are still preaching circumcision James is Peter is and Paul is the only one out there teaching this other thing that uh, believers in Jesus people who put Peter and James as their authorities they're still teaching Mosaic law they're still teaching circumcision Jesus' ministry was not an abolition of the law. Like some people, some people conflate the ministries of Paul and the ministries of Jesus and think they're teaching the same thing. No, Jesus' ministry was to the Jews. He did not come but to the lost sheep of Israel. And he came to preach uh, a gospel in which all of Israel would be saved and then the rest of the world would be reached through Israel. But that fell apart. And in the book of Acts, God turns finally to the Gentiles. And Paul writes about this in Romans, this grafting in of the Gentiles due to this failed mission to the Jews. And Paul's reasoning was, God is grafting in the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. And that's what's happening here. And this did not happen on the death of Jesus. This did not happen in Acts 2. This happened in Acts 9, when Paul was converted into the ministry of Jesus and given a special dispensation to the Gentiles that none of these other... Apostles knew about or endorsed, and this issue's not brought up until Acts 15 after Paul started his ministry. Then he's brought to Jerusalem to account for himself. And who rises up against him? Believing Christians. And who stands up for him? Peter, who Paul primes, as he writes about in Galatians. He talks to Peter privately before this, gets him on his team because he's politically minded. And then James follows suit eventually. We're reading a story. When we are reading the Bible, we have to look at what it's saying, what the characters are, who they are, what their motivations are, if it makes sense in context. And it doesn't work that these people are anyone other than believing Christians who put themselves under Peter and James who are confronting Paul in the first part of Acts 15. They are Christians trying to convert other Christians away from the ministry of Paul, which is resolved in Jerusalem. That's their authority. That's how they go solve this issue that's brought up at this remote location. It says this, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, the people teaching circumcision, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They're appealing to a higher authority. This is their high authority. This is an inter-Christian dispute. It doesn't deal with uh, just normal Jews who reject Jesus. They're not part of this conversation. These are all Christians we're talking about here. There's the circumcision party, and then there's Paul's party. And the people in Jerusalem haven't considered this matter. This is not a matter that they're concerned about. This is not a matter that they were given any information on. And And Paul has to now make his case, make his case. Acts fifteen five they get to Jerusalem and who arises but these Pharisees, a group of Pharisees rise up and say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses, uh, about the Gentiles. And think about this, are these Pharisees, are they people who believe and follow Jesus or not? These are believing Christians. These are people who are still appealing to James. These are people who are involved in this discussion and are shut down eventually when uh, they're given a brief history of, of their people and they're given uh, this, this pacifying letter, basically. These people are taught that the entire purpose of Israel throughout history has been to be for a light to the Gentiles. And that's what brings them back down. They're brought to understand that uh, converting to Judaism has never been the plan throughout all of history. Peter acts as an intercessory here on behalf of Paul. Peter rises up to these believing Pharisees and he says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about Coriolanus here. These are people he's talking to who are gonna accept that as a legitimate thing in in their religious history, their religious tradition. These are not unbelievers. This is of zealous, for circumcision, believing Christians who believe in Jesus that uh, are endorsed by James. Endorsed by James. He says this, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So this is another political card on Paul's part. Paul builds up a following, and he builds up a a repertoire of miracles and acts, and that he could use to present to the apostles in Jerusalem, not only to say that uh, I'm a legitimate uh, prophet or I'm a legitimate apostle of Jesus, and just look at my... The, the things that I've been doing. Look at all these miracles that happened. Look look at my ministry, and that's going to be my proof. He builds that up before he brings the initial issue to the 12, to James. It's a political move. And what are they going to do? They're going to deny it. They're going to say, oh, what you did was, was not from God. Not if he has this repertoire behind him backing them up. They're going to consider more carefully what he has to say and and the the clout that he has behind him, the believers that he's converted, the people that he has behind his name, what he can bring to Christianity. So James answers second, and James by this time has become the de facto leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He's, He's the strong rock that everyone turns to for the final decision. He has supplanted Peter at some point in history. Peter at one point was bold, he would draw his sword and fight for Jesus, but now he becomes the peacemaker. He becomes meek. He, he becomes the one that uh, goes and visits Paul and then falls in line with Paul until the men from James comes and then he reforms because uh, James is his superior in his mind. He has to form himself to James' ultimate authority. and It's evident that Paul does too because in Acts 21, James reigns supreme when Paul is finally called to account. James stands up and he says uh, basically he endorses the ministry of Paul and then they write a letter. They, they put some limitations on what Paul can actually preach to the Gentiles, what the basic rules are for Gentile believers. Not everyone has to convert to Judaism. Remember, that was never the plan throughout the Bible. So this is pretty common sense stuff to anyone who follows, follows the plot of the Bible, the Gentiles' role within uh, the salvation history. Jews were always supposed to be a priest nation, a set-apart nation, mediators between God and man, and the Gentiles were supposed to be the normal inhabitants of the world who would also worship Yahweh, and they would bring the tribute to the priest nation. Those were the different roles that were forever set out to be, and they're just fulfilling these roles in this letter, in this determination, in this acceptance of Paul's ministry. And this is what the letter says. These are the limitations on Paul's ministry. It says this, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, James and the rest of the apostles, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. And who's this to? Is this to Jews and Gentiles at large? no it's to the gentiles it's to the gentiles up here acts fifteen twenty-three. they wrote this letter by them the apostles the elders and the brethren to the brethren who are of the gentiles in antioch syria and Silistra, greetings, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling to your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. They're writing to the Gentiles. The Jews have not been exempted from the ritual law as of yet, and they were never supposed to be in the minds of Peter and James. But guess what Paul starts pe- preaching after this time? After Acts 15, he starts teaching not only Gentiles, but Jews should not be circumcised. And this is a big red flag, and it brings him into a lot of trouble. The letter, the prohibition on having to fulfill the ritual law, that was meant for Gentiles alone. Now let's read Paul's account of this event. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. He's saying, I had a special dispensation from God to go up to this. He wasn't forced to go up there. He wasn't compelled to go up there to get someone else's authority. He was given a revelation to go up there and communicated to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputation. This is Peter. He consulted with Peter to get Peter on his side before the public trial, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He's saying, I won out here. This was my victory. And uh, the circumcision party did not win. And so he's writing to the Galatians in Galatians and condemning them for turning to this circumcision idea, this circumcision gospel taught by people from James. He writes this, and this occurred because false brethren, false brethren? These aren't false brethren. They're just normal Christians are followers of james but uh remember back to paul's attributes he's a little neurotic he's very bold and he's very confrontational he's going to call him false brethren he says because of false brethren they secretly brought in Who came in by stealth to spy our liberty. He's saying they're going to try to bring us under bondage. These these very bad people. Which we have in Jesus Christ that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission. Oh, he stood up. He was bold. He stood up against Peter. He stood up against James. He stood up against the twelve. He stood up against this party of circumcision. To whom we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you, but from those who seem to be something, he's saying, uh, the people that everyone gives authority to, this is James, James he's talking about here, the head of the church, he's saying, people think he's something, um, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, he's saying, I don't know, you know, James, he's just like a normal guy, it doesn't matter, he doesn't have some special authority, he says this, Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those whom seemed to be something added nothing to me. James added nothing to me. Peter added nothing to me. The 12 apostles added nothing to me. Parties circumcision added nothing to me. I kept preaching what I was told by God directly to preach, and these other people, they didn't influence me. I'm not under their authority. You might think I'm under their authority. You might think that they are the rightful successors of Jesus's ministry, but no, I am. I have my special revelation. I spoke to Jesus on the road to Damascus and elsewhere, elsewhere. It's my ministry. I'm not under their authority like you think. And he names them too. He names it too. It's, I'm, I'm not making this up. He names the people who added nothing to him. He says this, but on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel of the circumcised was to Peter. So he's saying all the Gentiles, that's my purview. All the Jews, that's Peter's purview. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. He said, these guys didn't do anything for me. They didn't give me anything extra that I didn't already know. I'm still on my own dispensation. I'm still on my own authority that was given to me directly from God. These people are not my superiors. I don't report to these people. They don't control me. I do what I want. I'm Paul. What we have here are two very different versions of the same events. Take a look at Paul's version. In Paul's version, he stood up. He was the primary mover and shaker. Those other people, they didn't do anything. They they didn't have the authority in the situation. Whereas Luke's version, which is trying to show harmony between Paul and the 12, it's a more passive role. It, it doesn't really focus on, on exactly what Paul... Taught in what Paul was teaching, and it focused more on the affirmation of Paul's ministry by the twelve, by those established in Jerusalem. This this changeover of power, this this uh, acceptance of Paul's ministry in in mainstream Christianity. Paul then goes on his way and continues his missionary journeys. But what does he do? He violates this letter. He starts teaching Jews not to circumcise. He starts teaching Jews that all people are equal, that there's no distinction between Gentile and Jew. And as such, no one needs to follow these symbolic laws. Acts 21, he comes back to Jerusalem, and who's there waiting for him but the leader of the church? James is there. And let's see what goes down in Jerusalem between James and Paul. Acts 21, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. This is going to be a confrontational meeting. When he had greeting them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's trying that old routine where he's going to say, my ministry is legitimate because look at these uh, miracles, look at these works, look at the things I'm doing and what I can bring to the Christianity movement. But it's it's not going to work. It says this, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and then said to him, you see, brother, how the myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now this is problematic. These Jews are believing in Christ. These are Christians, but they're zealous for the law. And Paul is teaching against the law, but Paul didn't highlight that aspect in his recounting of events. And they're saying this, they But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. This is absolutely true. That's 100% what Paul is teaching. He's teaching Jews not to circumcise, not to follow ritual law. And this is is very problematic. James doesn't believe this. The elders don't believe this. And all these Christians who are in Christianity, These Jewish Christians are gonna rebel and kill him. Christians are gonna kill Paul over him teaching Jews not to circumcise. Followers of Christ disagree so much with Paul that they're gonna kill him. Says this. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. This is a, a rite of passage. This is this is a purification ritual. And it says this, Take them and be purified with them, pay their expense so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things which they were informed concerning you are nothing. He's saying, do this ritual to prove to all these Jews, everyone who wants to circumcise and keep the law, do these things to prove to them that that's not what you're actually preaching. They've been misinformed about you. You're not teaching Jews not to circumcise. Uh, They are enforcing this idea that the Jews are still under ritual law. James is, the elders are, the believing Christians, the hierarchy in Jerusalem. This is what the twelve still believe and preach. And Paul's not preaching that. Paul's not preaching that. And this is where Paul gets the crowd stirred up against him. And he's finally arrested. And this, this is where things go downhill. And he's finally sent to Rome, sent before Caesar, where he eventually dies. But these are believing Christians that are rising up against him. So let's read some people on this. Let's read Rita Aslan's take on this instant. Here's Aslan. Feeling bitter and no longer tethered to the authority of James and the apostles in Jerusalem, whatever they are makes no difference to me. Paul spent the next few years freely expounding his doctrine of Jesus as Christ. Whether James and the Apostles in Jerusalem were fully aware of Paul's activities during this period is debatable. After all, Paul was writing his letters in Greek, a language neither James nor Apostles could read. Moreover, Barnabas, James so linked to Paul, had abandoned him soon after the Apostolic Council for reasons that are unclear, although it bears mentioning that Barnabas was a Levite and as such would probably have been a strict observer of Jewish law. Regardless, by the year 57 CE the rumors about Paul's teachings could no longer be ignored. And so, once again, he is summoned to Jerusalem to answer for himself. This time, James confronts Paul directly, telling him that it has come to his attention that Paul has been teaching believers to forsake Moses and to not circumcise their children or observe the customs of the law. Paul does not respond to the accusation, though this is exactly what he has been teaching. He has gone even so far as to say that those who let themselves be circumcised will have cut themselves off from Christ, Galatians 5, 2-4. To clear up matters once and for all, James forces Paul to take part with four other men in a strict purification ritual in the temple, the same temple that Paul believes has been replaced by the blood of Jesus, so that all will know there is nothing to the rumors said about you and that you observe and guard the law. Paul obeys. He seems to have no choice in the matter, but as he is completing a ritual, a group of devout Jews recognize him. Talking about that ritual, Aslan writes, What Luke is describing in this passage is called a Nazarite vow. Nazarites were strict devotees of the law of Moses who pledged to abstain from wine and refused to shave their hair or come near a corpse for a set period of time, either as an act of piety or in return for fulfillment of a wish, such as a healthy child or safe journey. James himself may have been a Nazarite, as the description of those who take the vow perfectly matches the descriptions of him in ancient chronicles. Considering Paul's view on the law of Moses in the temple of Jerusalem, his forced participation in such a ritual would have been hugely embarrassing for him. The entire purpose of the rite was to demonstrate to the Jerusalem assembly that he no longer believed what he had been preaching for nearly a decade. There was no other way to read Paul's participation in the Nazarite vow except as a solemn renunciation of his ministry and a public declaration of James's authority over him. All the more reason to doubt Luke's depiction of Paul as simply going along with the ritual without comment or complaint. James is exercising authority over Paul. James is putting Paul back under his authority, his headship, putting him on a leash, saying you need to stop teaching these things. You need to stop teaching Jews not to circumcise. Something absolutely Paul believed and then continued to preach afterwards. That's what's going on in Acts. It's a power struggle between various Christian factions. There's there's different ideas of how Gentiles need to be handled. What, what the purpose was of Jesus' death and resurrection, if you had to follow ritual law anymore, if the Gentiles had to follow it, if the Jews had to follow it, and uh, what were the dynamics of this coming kingdom? Um, Paul's position it continued to be, even after this point, that the Jews and Gentiles were equal. There's no difference. There's no ritual law that we need to fulfill in order to become saved. His position was that works do not save, but faith saves. And James disagreed with all of this, and this is what brought this conflict. Uh, We need to wrap this podcast up. We're going pretty long. Just remember who Paul was as a person. Remember his character, his temperament, uh, the politics that are at play, what he has to lose, and what he has to give to the Christian movement. Understand his dynamics with uh, the different Christian sects at the time. The Jewish sect, the sect uh, led by James and Peter, who advocated symbolic ritual law, not necessarily that all Gentiles must convert, but the Jews were the special chosen people and remained to be in their theology, as opposed to Paul's theology when all people were equal. He writes, this is the mystery that the Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers. He writes, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles in this new dispensation. And that's what leads us to these conflicts that we see in Acts. And that's why people gloss over these Acts passages. They don't understand how to, how to take these passages, how it fits into this picture of the early church that they want to create in which everyone lived in, in absolute harmony. There were no conflicts of vision. There were no conflicts of theology. But there absolutely was. There absolutely was th- these different sects that were fighting it out for dominance. And there was definitely these politics at play. And Paul knew when to play them, and he knew when to fold, and uh, ultimately his Christianity prevailed. Partly due to the fact that Jewish Christianity was destroyed in 70 AD with, with the fall of the Temple, and basically Jewish Christianity ceased to be a thing. They were exterminated. And Paul's writings then came to prominence. Paul was apostle of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles took over the church. And so his brand of Christianity ultimately reigned. So not our typical podcast, a lot of things to think about, a lot of things to try try to at least get some exposure to, because that's not, it's not what normal Christians think about the early church. Are you got any questions or comments on this podcast? Uh, feel free to start a thread on God is Open, add some comments to the YouTube video, send me an email. That works. Uh, thank you for listening.